0: Hello and welcome to Changes, it's Annie Mack here. This is the podcast where we talk to people all about how they have navigated the big changes in their lives. Okay, we're into July. Summer 2020 is on. I hope you're enjoying your your summer so far, as weird and as strange and as abnormal as it is. I hope you're getting a chance to feel uh, the sun on your face and to enjoy just a bit of warmth and maybe some sort of impending holiday even if that is not getting on a plane but just going to see some loved ones or going to the coast and having a little wade in the sea whatever it is uh, I hope you're getting to do a bit of that I'm going to be going to Ireland in August and I'm so excited because I haven't seen my family for about half a year so really excited to be getting over there and connecting with the fam Speaking of Ireland, my guest on this week's episode of Changes is an incredible Irish author called Sinead Gleeson. Sinead wrote a book called Constellations, a book of essays about health, art, gender, parenthood, bereavement, the body, and her own struggles with leukaemia and what she calls her wonky hips. She writes so beautifully. Uh, I was captivated by her style of writing, as well as the stories that she has been through as a woman today and her relationship with the health system and gender inequality in that. She has a huge love of reading. She presents RTE1's The Book Show in Ireland and she's massively articulate as you will see. So I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. Please enter the podcast Sinead Gleeson.
1: When I was 13 and I was just uh, literally a week or two into secondary school. So, you know, new school, loads of people you don't know. I picked up a limp one day and had a limp and tried to ignore it and it didn't go away. And eventually my mum brought me to see the GP who sent me to an orthopaedic guy who couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, but said I'd have to go into hospital immediately. So that was the start of pretty much four years of having exploratory surgery, having lots of operations, being very bedbound and missing an awful lot of school. So the eventual diagnosis after doing lots of different things where they cut you open and poke around um, was a, a kind of form of uh, juvenile arthritis. So it, it sort of ate into my hip but caused an awful lot of pain. Uh, so I spent most of those years either ve- very sore, in hospital uh, on crutches uh, limping around the place um, and generally I think to get ill at that time in your life is a very the, the worst possible time in a way in that you're, you're sort of you're, you're going from child to, to, to adult um, you're very self-conscious anyway you don't want anybody to be looking at you especially not if you're limping around the place um, and I found it a, a profoundly lonely time because everybody was sort of getting into their little gangs and making their friendships and I was always you know out of school and at home or you know stuck in these giant plaster casts they'd put me in after surgery so, yeah, they were they were lonely and they were formative, but I, I think they've had a huge impact on what I ended up doing with my life and certainly on me being a writer.
0: And so what age was it that you started to develop The Limp?
1: I was thirteen, and then I think pretty much up until seventeen. So I'd miss about three, four months of school while they do more surgery and try and fix it up. And in the in the in the middle of all that, I went to uh, in the first essay in the book. I, I there was a school trip to France, and um, there was of course there was a stampede for the school trip to France. So there was a ra- there was a raffle uh, for places, uh, and of course they just before they did the raffle, they're like, "And there's one person who's definitely going on this trip." And I was like, "Oh no, it's going to be me! It's going to be me, the cripple girl on the crutches." And, and sure enough, it was. So I got to, to pull out the tickets so you know everybody in Ireland was very religious at that time uh, as I was myself I'm certainly not now and I went to Lourdes and I thought I was going to get cured and of course I, I didn't so I, I, lots of things changed in my life at that time my attitude to faith my attitude to my body how I felt about my myself
0: yeah when you were a teenager in school how did you explain yourself to your friends at school what did you say if people asked what's what, what's going on with you
1: well, with close friends obviously they they a lot of them knew, and my friends were very really good at coming to see me in hospital but if i I was asked a lot, you know what's the limp or what happened to your leg and I used to just go, oh, I fell, you know I fell or oh, i oh, I hurt it I, I because it was just it was really embarrassing and it was really Boring for me to kind of replicate the story all the time, and I also I, I'm I'm quite quite allergic to pity. I'm not really interested in pity, and I didn't want people's pity. Um, so it was easier to just go, yeah, I fell over, you know, it's just a bit of a bump, and then and that would close down the story, as opposed to going, well, actually, there's loads of surgery and history, and 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 people are often kind and interested, but I I got I also got fed up with it, and I, I say this a lot in the book that illness is very boring, very repetitive. Uh, it, it intrudes on your life in a huge way, and that you could be doing anything else, you know, traveling, hanging out with your friends, playing with your kids, whatever it is, going to, going to work. Um, and it gets in the way of all those things. So I, I, I always describe it as a sort of not just an, an interruption to your life, but a disruption to your life.
0: Um, you explore in the book a lot, just the female body and also the kind of politics of healthcare in Ireland. Do you think that you were treated differently as a, as a young woman in those times in hospital?
1: I absolutely do for a couple of reasons Um, most of my I obviously dealt with orthopaedic surgeons an awful lot and that's changed now, but I never saw a single woman in orthopaedics when I was being treated in the 80s. It was It's a very male-dominated it, because it's quite a heavy physical part of medicine. It's a carpentry. It's literally, you know, hammers and mallets. Um, and I, I found that I was not listened to an awful lot. And I think if you're a patient of, of any age or any gender, you, you have to become your own lobbyist in a way. You have to advocate for yourself and speak up. Because in Ireland, and this is also changing, medicine was very classist kind of thing. A lot of the people I encountered were went to very privileged private schools. They were all from a certain part of South County Dublin. Um, they, they, There was there was a, an elitism there in, in the attitude from the get-go. And, and to me it seems to talk to anybody who feels vulnerable and frightened in a kind of condescending and dismissive way is bad enough. But to do it to a, a 13-year-old and a girl feels just unconscionable. So I, I do remember that I had to wear this really big, hefty plaster that went from my waist down for the, the when I, after one of the surgeries. And I remember getting that removed. And it's the part of the book I remember that the writer Olivia Lang said um, Said to me when she read it, that was the point where she threw the book across the room, where where it was being the plaster was being removed with a cast saw. My mother was in the room and I was getting more and more distressed because I could feel that it was starting to hurt. So this um, guy, this
0: guy thing. had a saw and he was sawing. Yeah, off it's your a cast.
1: rotating saw, and he kept saying to me like, it's a rotating blade, it doesn't penetrate the skin. You're not, you're, it's not cutting you. And I said, no, I really think it is. I'm, I'm feeling very sore, and I started to get distressed, and so did my mother. So he sent me shouted at my mother, sent her out of the room, and then continued for a few more minutes. And my mother said to me like, I wish I wish I hadn't left. I shouldn't have left you there but this is the deference that we had to these kind of people we were afraid of doctors so eventually he he gave up and he was shouting he said oh, I can't do this we'll have to bring you down to a theatre tomorrow and they did and and when they did you know it looks like a kid's you know scissors class has gone up my legs I still have the scars I have about seven or eight of them um on my legs because he said to me you're not in pain at the sores and hurting you and that's that's been a lot of my experience with the medical world and I'm sure anybody who's listened to this I, I've I, Every single person I met has had one bad encounter, at least with a doctor, where you feel you're not being listened to, you're not being heard. And to not listen or, or comfort somebody at a time where they feel very exposed and afraid, it, it just seems so wrong. So I've, I've done an awful lot of talking about empathy to, to, to lots of doctors. Uh, I've been at a couple of conferences where they're, they're eager to hear because I think there's so much focus on you know getting seven a's and being brilliant at bio- chemistry and biology but not about having a bedside manner and that's been the real dichotomy in medicine for a long time you can be super brainy and scientific but you need to be able to not be a robot and talk to people who who need you to just go and we know doctors are busy and tired especially at the moment you don't you don't have to we don't we know they don't have time for the half hour chat but they they do need to look you in the eye and go are you all right you know you're okay that's all it takes just that bit of reassurance but do you think that kind of that
0: awareness of the more holistic side of medicine can actually actually improve people's health quicker as well. Like I often think like, you know, my dad had cancer and, and, and his blood pressure was really up and they kept saying you can't get out of hospital because your blood pressure's up. And he was just like, I'm, I just hate being here. I've got no natural light. I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck. With, that's why my blood pressure's up. I'm stressed because of that. Like if I went home, it would go down. So it's a kind of the idea of being able to like help someone feel more relaxed. And as you say, have empathy, like be on their side a little bit more. Do you think that can help? I mean obviously medicine is medicine. I'm not trying to dispute the science of that, but just in yeah. terms of in in terms of the overall kind of uh, recovery of a, of a patient it can help, right?
1: 100%. Um, a, a kind of happy and relaxed and non-anxious patient is a patient who's going to get better quicker. And hospitals there's another section in the book where I just talk about the hospital as a kind of panopticon a place where you feel you can be seen at all times. They're they're terrible places you know they're, they're, they're so noisy they're so chaotic they're, they're, they're not very restful you don't sleep they're not the places that anybody wants to be uh, and you just want to get out of there so the, so the idea of keeping somebody in and I mean, that, even that image, I talk, about, uh, I talk about other people in the book, including a f- photographer called Jo Spence, who was a, a London photographer who documented her own breast cancer. And she took lots of photographs of, you know, the, the ring of white coats. So they're all standing around your bed, which is a really intimidating. I remember that vividly from when I was, was you know, 13, 14 and, and how none of them would speak. Nobody would introduce themselves and they would just be all circling the bed and talking about you like you weren't there. You know, the well, patient has this wrong with her hip or whatever. And you'd feel like uh, absent from your own story. So I, I, I kind of, I, I learned to, that you have, to, you have to talk. And I've had a couple of people say to me, like, I wish after reading your book, I wish I'd spoken up for myself more because you, you do have to speak up and, and kind of um, advocate for yourself and your own story. So learning your own medical narrative, you know, when I was diagnosed then and this happened, you know, when they ask you to tell that story is, is really important because no one's, no one's going to fight for you more than yourself. Um, and sometimes they're busy and they're only with you for two minutes in the, on the ward round. So you, you, you have to learn the language and, and talk back to them the way they speak
0: yeah can I ask you how you're feeling um in the midst of of the chaos of now of covid nineteen as someone who you know has suffered from illness in the past?
1: I feel like everybody else I feel quite uncertain uh and a, a bit anxious about the future for for loads of different reasons i I, I had a, a clot on my lung at one point. I remember what it's like to be st- struggling to breathe and how frightening it is um it's it's this the speed and the the wave and the scale of it that that's frightened me uh, and looking at i mean at least just broken my heart, you know, looking at what's going on there. It's a time where we all have to stay indoors and wash our hands and do all those things. At the same time, I feel weirdly hopeful in that. I feel that this has been strange long overdue wake up call for so many of us in terms of the way we work the way we live our lives uh, how we're too busy on our phones we're not present when we're hanging out with our kids you know we don't make enough time to have actual phone calls or meetups with friends because we're too busy and I think that this kind of period of isolation will maybe make us more empathetic and make us be uh, a little bit more present and a little bit part of the big cog of the machine where we're all doing too much and making ourselves ill because a lot of where illness comes from are places of stress and overwork and exhaustion. So I'm hoping when we do all come through this, uh, and, and we will, we definitely will, that we'll all be, we'll all have, have changed our priorities a little bit.
0: Yeah. One of the things that struck me in the book when when we kind of get past your your teenage years and we're talking, you're talking about your pregnancies is the idea of the kind of shadow of your illness being over everything else in your life. Like pregnancy is supposed to be, you know, should be this time of joy. And of course it was for you, but also you had this kind of underlying anxiety about whether your hips would be able to to manage um, in, in amongst all of this. Tell me about the kind of process of pregnancy for you both times and... And kind of through the lens, I guess, of of your arthritis.
1: Yeah, I I, I always knew if I was going to get pregnant, uh, I, I you know it'd be a C section because my my hips are you know at that point I hadn't had a hip replacement so they're fused together and it would have been dangerous. But in my 20s when I was 28 we just got married I had a clot in my leg which broke off and went into my lung uh, and I thought that was going to be the worst news I got that day but it was uh, it wasn't it was like you've got this lung clot because you've got this rare kind of leukemia um, so I went through pretty much six months it, it, you know I, I know all about isolation and face masks and hand washing and wearing plastic aprons because that was my life for six months uh, and then a further two years of maintenance. So. I was in my early 30s, I always knew I wanted to have children and I just thought, you know, between my hips and the leukaemia because again, the, the leukaemia diagnosis was very quick and acute so there was there was no freezing eggs. You couldn't even do it in Ireland at the time. It was just chemo starts tomorrow and the rest of your life starts tomorrow and hoping you don't die starts tomorrow. Um, so when it came time to decide to have children, I, I, you had to wait a long time because one of the drugs I took was very toxic and they'd warned me about this. So I waited the time and we thought, OK, well, we'll, we'll give it a go. But I remember saying to my husband, you know, I've had so much invasiveness and surgery and things done to my body that, if this doesn't happen, I, I I don't think I could face doing IVF or IUI, and I because I know it's very arduous from friends who have done it, and I I just said I'm just not going to do it. Let's just roll the dice and see what happens. And you know I I remember I turned 32, and three months later I was pregnant, which I find to be the most miraculous thing, of all. Um, which was fairly plain sailing and brilliant, and my daughter was born quite close afterwards to my son. Um, but that kind of went, that's when it all felt sort of fell apart. The hip thing I was about five months in. Uh, to that pregnancy where I was back on the crutches, total agony. You know, couldn't sleep at, with a, a, a toddler. It was it was just absolutely the worst time. And the, the thing again about illness or, or pain, particularly particularly pain, is that it takes over everything. It, it it distracts you. You're 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 not yourself. It affects your form. It affects your sociability. You're cranky. You're snappy. You can't sleep. It just your own eating things. So you can take painkillers. You know, it's it's so all encompassing. It literally takes. It's like a big dark cloud over your head. Um. So I've written it, it parts of the book about the kind of how pain is a very inexpressible thing. It's also a very unique thing. You know, if you and I get a headache, your headache won't be the same as mine. It won't be in the same place. It won't last for the same amount of time. So I was interested in the kind of inexpressibility of pain in a way, because there's loads and loads of words for it, but often they're not even the right words. They don't do it justice. Yeah,
0: sure. So the second change, the kind of most profound change you went through as an adult was this diagnosis of, of leukemia. There's a bit where you, you, it, it happened, what, six months after you got married, right? Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So you're 28 years old. Yeah, we we just got married in the, July and this was January, so it was really cold, freezing January, actually.
0: And you asked the doctors, am I going to die? What did they say?
1: They said, well, we can't really tell you that and... We, we can't make any promises but we're going to try our best that you don't which is you know it's not a no you're not or no you'll be fine um, and, and your heart it's it's you know it, it is like something out of a, a film it's it's the, the the worst thing you can imagine being told because I said you know they're obviously not telling me uh, because they think it's pretty bad and, they, and I was really really ill because I had loads of other complications Um and I just remember thinking, you have a flash forward. Uh, and I'm one thing I did think about was children because I was, you know, I had all these plans like everybody else. I wanted to write. I wanted to have a family. There's sorts of a- countries I wanted to visit and, you, and your life flashes forward to all the things you're not going to do if, if, if you die um, and, it's a, and I think it was the first night the first night I was ter- so upset and really sad and scared and then I went you know I, I can't if I'm like that every day I'll never get through it because illness takes a lot out of you physically and mentally so I allowed myself to be all mopey and sad the first night and then it was just I have to get on with it because I have to get better I, I don't want to die you know
0: Your response to your mum when uh, she came in to see you was I'm going to write a book had that always been the plan for you?
1: I had always wanted to write. And and like a lot of people, I ha- was fearful about it. And like, again, I'd always worked. And, you know, I was a reviewer. I used to present a book show on the radio. Uh, people in Ireland would, have, would associate me with books. And I thought, you know, I'm not telling any of them. I'm writing a book and crazy. It's terrible. So I, I didn't <laughs> tell anybody. And I, was, I, I wasn't writing that much at the time. I was, you know, I was freelancing, doing a lot of music journalism, as it happens at the time. Um, but that night when my parents were coming in my mum is a real worrier and I, I literally couldn't look into her face and tell her I just I couldn't do it so I asked one of the nurses to do it and that's when she I was like I have to say something to her when she comes around the curtain and she was distraught as was my dad and that's when I said I'm not going to die I'm going to write a book and you know I don't remember saying that and it was only when I was writing Constellations my mother said to me do you remember what you said that night and, and I didn't remember but I, I I so some part of my brain I something survivalist I guess um uh, you know just pulled something up to to offer something to her because I just had to I, I think maybe I was saying it as much for myself you know as a, as a promise to myself I will die I, I won't die I will get better and I will write that book so maybe I was trying to fool myself that uh, I, I needed a kind of a, a flag in the distance to head for me perhaps.
0: Yeah you talk about blood in this book so viscerally and there was a line that you talked about again that just stayed with me which is the idea of blood when you see it in in kind of pop culture in films and 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 in art being this kind of heroic male thing like a man gets punched and he's got blood coming down his face and he's this kind of hard man and then kind of the parallel of women just quietly getting on with bleeding for five days every month and just 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 so so resilient just just getting on with it and just, just seeing women's, seeing menstruation through the prism of, of that kind of male hero gaze, uh, this women being just these, just these quiet, unassuming heroines every month. I just loved it I just loved how you looked at it
1: Yeah I mean it, this is it it's you know periods if, for all the people who might find them icky and awful and don't want to hear about them are the reason that every single person is in the world you know without without periods and menstrual cycles there'd be no babies um, so so it's I, I just find that the idea that it's considered again as often things around women's bodies are you know icky hide that away don't talk about it keep quiet about it when it's actually like an unbelievable feat of science more than you know getting a bloodied lip or you know you know the, the kind of slow slow motion spray of a, of blood in a boxing ring when you see it in Rocky or whatever it is it's but it, it is that kind of like that men's blood and and I guess it's around I I talk a good bit about the gendering of of medicine and in, in in the book and what happens to that often female experiences even the idea of writing about you know parenthood when women write about it it's kind of small and domestic and when when you know Martin Amis or other men write about parenting it's like it's, it's you know it's the human condition and it's epic and big and I'm interested in the the dichotomy between both of those kind of narratives
0: can we talk about the the kind of the irish medical system and and the different ways that women are treated in there especially post um abortion um referendum like do you feel like the way that women are speaking up for themselves has changed since then
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I don't think a book like mine would exist in that A, I wouldn't have written it and B, somebody probably wouldn't have published it if it was even 20 years ago Um, because there's an idea in in Ireland uh, uh, as you know there's always been such a culture of silence and secrecy and we've had this happen with mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries and industrial schools and clerical child abuse there's been loads of dark and terrible things that have been perpetrated on bodies and and, and lots of those bodies have been the bodies of women Um, but alongside that apart from feeling the rage and the shame there's also culture of don't talk about it you know whisper it it, it, behind closed doors don't bring up these problems don't make them public you'll embarrass people if you do Um, even though some of these things were criminal as we know Uh, and that culture has changed that idea I I say many times when I've, I've done events for this book that I think Ireland's changed more in the last 10 years and it has in the previous 80 put together um the the, the rate of progress has accelerated and they were certainly not perfect in loads of regards uh, uh there's lots more things to be done but i think that that's raising up of voices and that collective urge to speak and then the need to be heard and then wanting to say things that were important because i i honestly didn't think i would see um abortion legislation in my lifetime i really had given up on that idea because there's been such they're very powerful um Pro-life. Well, we're all pro-life. I should say uh, anti-choice forces uh, in this country. Um, the church still very much doesn't have the same kind of hold that it had, but they're, they're still very voluble. They have control over the schools. There's still a lot of people who listen to them. Um, when I always thought that you know this isn't an ethical issue. It's a it's it's a bodily issue. It's a health issue, which is how it should be treated. Which is why the, so many doctors got involved in the the conversation as well. So it has changed, and I, I, I and for that reason, I think we'll never go back to being you know veiled in secrecy or feeling that your voice doesn't matter or feeling that you want to talk about something around the body that you won't be able to that's that's long gone and and it's it's right but it's happening across you know it's happening in medicine and it's happening it's happened with you know same-sex marriage was a similar thing that happened here you know a country like Ireland being the first country in the world by referendum to bring in same-sex marriage is, is staggering to me if you told me that 10 years ago I you know 15 years ago I, I wouldn't have believed it so so I'm wary of us patting on our backs for being so progressive and, and and cool. When this, you know, we have direct provision and massive homelessness and and uh, um, poverty crises and rent crises like lots of other cities and 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 countries in the world. But there's been a lot of good change, uh, and it's been really and I, again often based on telling stories. This is the idea. Lots of that was got across the line because people put themselves out on the limb and told their stories of, you know. Uh, fatal fetal abnormality or or a life-saving abortion or or poverty if in, in, uh, influences their, their decisions so stories stories can change things and stories are the thing that got that that referendum across the line i think let's talk about poverty for
0: for a second and just class classism within medicine in terms of the different ways that patients can be treated on account of their class and also on account of their skin color um yeah. do you feel like there's still massive problems with that in that regard in medicine
1: I think it's gotten better uh, and, and while I had a lot of terrible uh, experiences with orthopaedic doctors my haematology doctors the, the people who saved my life my leukaemia were, were brilliant and wonderful my the, my consultant um, uh, Professor Brown came to my book launch. she's a lovely wonderful man um, so there's there's because there's more conversations around empathy and listening to patients and, and there's initiatives like hello my name is where doctors are encouraged to come in and talk to people but you, until in, in Ireland still medicine is still very much the, the, the preserve of the elite so you need to have have a lot of money to go to college. It is people who've gone to certain schools and come from certain backgrounds, not exclusively. And um, we also have a lot of people who come to Ireland from different countries to, to, to study. A lot of our nurses are, are, are wonderful nurses, are Filipino nurses. Um, so there is at least diversity in the, me- the medical world. But I don't I don't think that extends to, to class and money, unfortunately. And I think we'd have a more uh, ethical and more empathetic healthcare service if there were more different types of people from different backgrounds, not just people who grew up... Almost exclusively in in very privileged backgrounds, and I think that that shouldn't because my my own family background is you know I write about my grandmother and my great grandmother in the book who both you know grew up in tenements, they were incredibly poor, uneducated women who had very hard lives. I mean, the idea of one of them being a, a doctor would have felt to them like the idea of going to the moon, you know. Um, so I, I'd love to, I'd love there to be I'd I'd love there to be more different kinds of doctors as well, you know.
0: Sure. Um, I, I listened to this uh, amazing piece on Women's Hour about uh, women of colour um, in, in medicine and how there is a kind of intrinsic racism in medicine from from the very beginnings, from the actual people who wrote the books of how medicine should work in, in, in the West. Um, I was really shocked by it and also ashamed of myself for not ever having even... Uh, Thought about it before in terms of the kind of rates of women who are who die, um, you know, who are women of color compared to white women and that kind of thing. Have you any um, thoughts on on that side of things at all?
1: Absolutely, uh, and and one of the things I've said many times to my publisher and, and publicly when we do I do readings and things is the idea that I'm very aware for all the terrible things that have happened in my life, I I'm a, a mostly able bodied cis white. A uh, privileged woman who grow who you know is growing up in a, a big city in a first world country. So I'm incredibly lucky and privileged and aware of that. And, and when I talk about pain, there are loads and loads of stories from around the world about of of patients being not listened to and women not being not listened to. And the highest rates of that, as you can imagine, are women of color. And women of color are more likely to die in childbirth than, than white women. And there's been again loads of evidence for this. It's not just uh, you know it's not just a, a, a an article from the New York Times. There's loads of mes- medical evidence to suggest that there is a dismissiveness. Um and a condescension and a uh, uh, not being, uh, empathetic to people of color. And again, that's just that's part of a broader, uh, still going, ongoing, um, sway of racism that we have. That as 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 we we know, and particularly in the, the UK, we've seen the rise of some um, very ugly. Uh, uh sections of society people whose views to me but seem to belong uh, from uh, to areas long long ago when i when you know the world can only get better as long as there's diversity and difference and all sorts of people sort of living together and we've seen that people pulling together in the current kind of crisis but i'll never understand racism it doesn't make any sense to me um and i i, I assume it comes from people who are who are both ignorant and fearful and don't like difference or don't like things that are not the same as their very limited scope of experience. Um, and that, to me, would just be, you know, I, I don't understand it. I've never understood it. And I can imagine that it is really, really um, horrifying and probably very frightening to go into the health service as a person of colour, knowing that maybe you won't be listened to as much as somebody who, who looks like me or looks like you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I want to talk about empathy. The, You know, you, ha- you have... So much empathy um as you know because because of who you are, but also because of what you've been through in in terms of being in the kingdom of the sick how can how can we be more empathetic if we haven't suffered trauma and if we don't understand chronic pain? how can we the listeners um, who are listening to you right now, how can we be more empathetic to those to those people who have being through trauma.
1: It is that, that old kind of adage of, of you know putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Try to imagine for a moment what a day in someone else's life is like. And the internet is bringing for this again because you see this. I follow various people on, on Twitter who have about, about loads of doctors and loads of people who've got health and chronic issues. And you just hear the experience of both sides of the story. At the moment, we're hearing from doctors who are being absolute heroes. And then you're hearing from people who are because they've got chronic issues or health pains are completely isolated in their homes and worried and sad about their underlying health issues. So it's it's listening to other people, seeking out those kind of stories so you can find out about it. Um there's a, there's an arm of medicine or medical teaching now called Medical Humanities where I know that for, so in Trinity College in Dublin there's my book has been taught to first year medical students to teach them about patient perspective to teach them about remembering to be kind remembering to look into somebody's eye when you tell them good or bad news whatever it is so so reading and I mean I, I always say things like, things like the arts like listening to music makes you empathetic reading books makes you empathetic so trying to find specific stories you might not want to read a whole load of stuff about pain but I think that those are the things it's why we need them when people talk about funding the arts and stuff. You need them for different reasons. So the reasons you need hospitals and the reasons you need, you know, bridges and motorways. And those things are just as valid in, in my view. So seek out those stories, read stories like some of the ones I talk about in this book. There's loads of wonderful writers who've written about pain and illness. But it's, and also every so often when you feel everything's getting on top of you, if you've got a functioning, working, healthy body, remind yourself of that. And that's the best way to remind yourself that you're not going through the terrible thing is that others are
0: and what would you say to someone who's listening right now who is suffering from chronic pain
1: I would say I sympathize I hear you and I think people who go through chronic pain are some of the biggest warriors in the world and that they're often the people who complain the least about it when they are literally dealing with something that that is almost like having a, a woodpecker on the side of your head you can't you can't ignore it it's consistent it's 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 boring, it's ongoing, they don't see the end inside of it. Um, And all I can say is that I I hear you and I sympathise and I am just in awe of people who manage to get day to day, every day without letting it overwhelm themselves and still manage to achieve all manner of different things. Um, And that I hope someone's looking after them and I hope doctors are listening to them.
0: Yeah. You can tell when you read the book how much art has kind of helped you in, in your journey. Can we talk about Frida Kahlo quickly, and and kind of what what is it about Frida Kahlo that that really moved you and helped you?
1: You can't say talk about Frida Kahlo quickly, or I won't talk about Frida. Um, I, uh, Frida was one of the people that I that I found, and I know there's a lot of fetishizing of Frida, and you know there's mugs and socks and all the rest of it. But I I for me. I was trying to find a way to talk about my illness and articulate what was going on with me. And I, and I couldn't really do it. I certainly couldn't do it in words. I couldn't have written any of this stuff back then. But what I saw with Frida was she found a way to take her suffering and her mangled body. She'd had polio. She was in a terrible bus crash. Um, she, it caused her infertility problems. She couldn't have children. Um, she took her, her pain and her suffering and her, her, her misbehaving body, which is a word I'm stealing from Joe Spence, uh, and turned it into art. And it kind of showed me a couple of things that it isn't shameful to show a body that's full of scars and messed up and broken. It's She kind of celebrated it. But it also showed me that you can turn the terrible things that have happened to you into something useful and purposeful and in her case beautiful and affecting so those p- paintings there's one a very famous one called The Broken Column where she depicts her spine as a kind of a load of um, an iron column and there's, there's nails in her body so for me she was showing me how you can articulate pain and illness and suffering because I didn't have the words or the language for it then I hope I do now but she showed me something I needed to see and, and so she's been a lifelong kind of constant for me that work is really important um, because I think it's something like 70% of her, of her work is self-portraits it's all her turning the her own unflinching gaze her mother got a, a mirror put up above her bed so she could paint herself which I love the idea of so yeah she's been a real kind of touchstone for me someone whose work has been really important and, and really comforting to me even though some of it's you know quite physical and a little bit gory And but it's you know it was, it was hospitals it was illness it was doctors it was the stuff that I knew and that's why I related to it
0: Yeah and then when you started kind of using your experiences of illness uh, you know and channeling them through art How did it make you feel when you were first able to start writing about what you've been through? Was it a catharsis?
1: I was kind of resistant to the idea of writing about myself because I, I think this is a collection of essays. It's not it's not a memoir because I wasn't interested in writing a memoir because lots of my life's pretty boring, to be honest. Um, so I wanted to write about elements of it I, and, and started to see that there is a way of grouping things. So there's pieces about pain and illness. There's pieces about, you know, my grandmother and my godmother. I, I write about her dementia. Uh, I write about loads of artists and music and painters and, and motherhood and trying to be a writer and, and a mother. Um, so I, I kind of selectively, there's a, a brilliant writer that I love called Vivian Gornick uh, and she says that the, the, the memoirist tells all and the essayist selects. So that's kind of what I, I try to do with this book. I, I I pick different sections. So when I did start to write it and, and parts of it were very hard to write. So writing that, that the essay about going back all those years and trying to get across the loneliness and the isolation that illness brings, um, it, it does bring it back to you in a way. Um, I would say uh, i i do not believe in catharsis um, because catharsis implies that writing something down made you feel better and and writing this book didn't make me feel better um it made me understand it made me feel you know i know how i feel about how the things that happened to me having not really processed them before um and i have an understanding of them and and, and i hope or i've been told by readers that they have it's helped them understand their own experience as well so yeah it didn't it didn't cleanse and and, and offer any catharsis but it it was definitely useful for me to write about because i understood more and um, it gets it out of your system in a way, but not in a kind of ah, I feel all relieved because because that's that's not what I want from writing. It's not what I get from writing either. You know, you get something else from it. I think.
0: It feels like there's, there's, it, it, it's a very good time in Ireland um, in terms of writing and, and the writers that are kind of coming out of Ireland and and not just having success in Ireland, but having success all over the world.
1: It's it's incredible. I mean, we've, we've always been a, a hugely literary nation and everybody knows all the, you know, the Joyce and the Yeats and Oscar Wilde and all that. But for a long time, and you know, I, I edited two anthologies that were just short stories of women. And I did that because the canon was very, very male. And there was a lot of when people, the go-to names were always the male names. And that's... Why I edited those books, but in the last even ten years ago, I remember there was that this, this the wave was starting, uh, and Ann writes a good friend of mine, and she's you know has spoken before that you know ten or fifteen years ago she would get a call to say you know we need to we need to we need a woman for the panel not we need another writer for the panel, um, so Ann Anne was that lone woman for a long time, but that has hugely changed so in the last ten years. You've seen people like Kevin Barry and Colin Barrett. Um, in the next couple of months alone, there are loads of books, and I'm feeling very sad for writers who have work coming out. Um, launch has been cancelled events being cancelled um, uh, so people like Dara Negrief uh, Elaine Feeney's got a wonderful novel as you were it's very comic set in the hospital everyone's very on point at the moment with their work um, but yeah it's it's been a we've always been a. a, a I don't know if that goes back to the oral tradition of telling stories in Ireland we've always been a very verbal kind of culture um, but everybody seems to be writing and it's you know it's stories appearing in the New Yorker winning international prizes uh, and, and doing it really well so I think it's part of being being people who are always interested in stories and narratives and entertaining people, um, people Irish people, you know, they talk to people at bus stops I do anyway um, so we, we like telling stories and I think we seem to do it quite well here, you know um,
0: I just want to ask you before before you go Sinead um, another essay that really stuck with me was was you talking about Rob your ex-boyfriend, close friend um, and and how he and how he died really tragically when you were very young how did his sudden death change you at the time
1: it was that that's the essay in the book they took the longest to write I think I've probably been working on that for 10 or 12 years because every time it, it's the kind of thing you have to get right because I'm still very close to Rob's family uh, and I was worried that they might want me writing about it or they might it might upset them and that's obviously something you, you think really seriously about it also involves you know my, my husband who is you know who's a sound engineer and he's helping me record this he's doing he's pushing all the buttons uh, and it's it's so you, when you're writing a book you're often not telling just your own story you're telling other people's and that's a, that's a huge concern so in that instance myself and Rob and I hadn't gone out but himself and Steve were very good friends and shared a flat and the week that Steve and I got together later that week was the week Rob died so whenever people ask you that story you know the how did you meet your husband or how did you meet often it's a really happy story and in ours case it, it, it just wasn't it was the worst week of, of both of our lives because he died so so suddenly and so young um, so again in, in connection to the book I, I talk mortality is a theme that flits through the book as you, you, you may have guessed and, and thinking about Rob that you know I, I've been really ill and I'm still here. Rob was never sick a day in his life and he was gone at 24. So it is this unpredictability of life that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's around the corner. You could be gone tomorrow. Um, and that that was, a, I think, for the few months after that happened, it was just an incredibly sad and, and weepy time. Uh, and, and and we miss them all the time. Um, but it's it's made me value my own life, even if it's been one that's been kind of tainted a bit by, by sickness. Um, it's made me realise that, yeah, not not everyone gets to get old, so make make the most of it. But um, but yeah, that that piece it appeared in the Guardian actually, and I I think the thing I loved was lots of the comments said that it made people remember someone that they lost when they were young, you know, a friend who died when they were a teenager, or someone in an accident, or or a suicide. Right. So for one day, it felt like a load of people were reminiscing about people they hadn't thought about in a long time. And again, that's the, that's what stories can do. They can bring people together, often just really randomly because of a chance remark or an article they read in the newspaper or, or an essay in a book. You know,
0: yeah, uh, Shanae, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so and much. Lovely
1: to talk to you, and and in a, from our collective sheds. Thank yeah. you so
0: much to Sinead Gleason. I hope you enjoyed that. Please go follow her on Twitter at Sinead Gleason, S I N E uh, A D G L E E S O N. And you will not regret it. She also on Instagram posts beautiful art and beautiful words all the time. I find her really inspiring. Right, we're going to be taking a short break to plan the next series of changes. Thank you for all your feedback on the show. We have some incredible guests lined up i'm so excited for you to hear them uh big shout out to all the people who have left five star reviews on apple podcasts particularly h claire woe and maddie sell every review helps pushes up the charts and helps more people discover the show so thank you so much spread the word share the episodes that you love uh, this episode was produced by abby Hollick at We Think audio have a great few weeks folks i'm off to ireland to drink some guinness we'll be back before the summer is out